Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me back in the small room, still in New York. It's cold. It's wet. I'm talking to Lucas Shaw, who's probably not cold or wet because he's in Los Angeles. Hey, Lucas. Hey, Peter. I wish I'd identify you. I think of you as Lucas Shaw, the guy who writes the best, uh, most frequent uh, reporting on my beat. The guy who frequently... Besides you. No, no, no. You, you're kicking everyone's ass, including mine. So I thought at least I can do before you steamroll over me is have me, have me on the podcast. You're from Bloomberg. Do you have a title there we should care about? Uh, entertainment reporter, yeah. Hollywood reporter. If for some reason you listen to this podcast, you don't read Lucas Shaw's stuff, uh, I don't know what to tell you. Um, if you don't have a Bloomberg subscription, that's okay. Um, he sends out a newsletter every week that is a must-read. Um, I'm assuming you can Google it or maybe go into his Twitter account and find it out. It is also, for the first time in a long time, if ever, available as an actual story on the Internet, which is something that I have asked for for a long time. For a while, I would copy and have to copy and paste it into Medium, uh, which I hopefully don't have to do anymore. Yeah, for a while, I thought we could hire you because you were putting out this newsletter and it didn't seem like Bloomberg wanted you to do it. And I was saying, you know, Lucas, you could come over to, to Vox and we'd, we'd support your newsletter. And then Bloomberg wised up. So, sorry, but glad to get to talk to you. Thank you. It's a good chance you were listening to this at the beginning of January or in very late December, which means Lucas and I are going to talk about the year behind us and the year coming up. We are also perhaps contractually obliged to talk about the last decade since we're now in 2020. How does all that sound, Lucas? Sounds good to me. I mean, uh, I... It, it, didn't, it has just re, kind of occurred to me that it was the end of a decade, seeing all the end of the decade lists. Maybe my my head is so down on whatever's happening today or this week that I'm not really thinking about it in terms of the decade, especially because I started this decade still in college. Jesus but. Christ. Um, thanks. Thanks again, Lucas, for making me feel bad. <laughs> um, and yes, uh, end of the year, end of the decade. It's kind of pointless, but here we are talking about it anyway. One reason it's great to talk to Lucas, in addition to him being great and really young, is that he covers a lot of different things so we can jump to a lot of different places. Let's start with topic A, 2019. I think if we had to sum it up, is the year of the streaming wars. I'm putting streaming wars in air quotes because some people don't like that term. Where do you fall on that? Do you, do you like streaming wars as a term or do you think it's ridiculous? I am opposed to the rampant use of military terms in describing something as kind of squishy as media and entertainment. That being said, it is very catchy and it is hard to avoid using it. So it's one of those phrases where just writing my newsletter on Sunday or Saturday, I was about to use it and I had to find a way around it. What's your username um, you use instead? 
streaming conflagration? Uh, competition between large media conglomerates. I don't know, something that doesn't sound nearly as good. Yeah, spoken like um, a guy who does not publish on the web very much. So, <laughs> again, if you're listening to this podcast, you know what the streaming wars are. It's Netflix versus everyone. It's Disney versus everyone. It's We don't talk about Amazon for some reason, even though they're spending billions of dollars to get into it. One reason it's good to follow Lucas is Lucas will say, hey, you know what you all are getting wrong? And they'll say it in a way that you don't quite get as a subtweet, but eventually figure it out. It's this. So what is the idea that people like me, the people who write stories about the stream wars or who talk about it, are missing? Is there an overarching thing that we're not getting right when we write about these things? The, the topic is pretty straightforward in that you have five, six, seven companies all more or less doing the same things, spending billions of dollars to make shows and build out the technology so that people can watch stuff at home. All their strategies are slightly different. You know, some services are a little cheaper. Some are going to have kind of different, you know, Disney Plus will have more yep. Marvel and Star Wars. Hulu will be more for adults, all that kind of stuff. The two, I guess the two narratives that bug me the most are this idea that it's a zero-sum game, which I think you understand perfectly, but a lot of people think that just because Disney Plus is a success, that means that Netflix will automatically suffer. Mm -hmm. And that just seems to mischaracterize the idea that you're having a sh this kind of migration of viewers from cable and satellite to the internet. And much like there are multiple TV networks that succeed, there will be multiple online video networks that succeed. And entertainment and television is not like social media or search, where I think there can be such great network effects that there is a, a monopoly because you can't have a monopoly on creative output. It's just impossible. And the other one that I think doesn't get enough coverage, and that's not just true of streaming wars, but just in general, is the international component of it, mm -hmm. which is something that, that Netflix tried to stress with a, a filing with the SEC uh, in, in late December, uh, which kind of outlined the growth that it has had and continues to have in areas like Europe and Latin America and just starting in Asia. And if there's one advantage that Netflix still has on the Disney's and Comcast and AT&T's of the world, it's that it's that it has spent seven, eight years figuring out what types of programs people in Brazil and France like and kind of how it can best deliver that programming to them, how they can get people to pay for it. And Netflix hasn't figured that out itself. I, you know, Asia remains a big, big question mark for the company. But Netflix has 45 million customers in Europe, Middle East and Africa. It has 29 million customers in Latin America Disney Plus could probably catch up to Netflix within a certain period of time in the U.S. I think it's going to take a lot longer for some of these other services to catch up in other parts of the world. We will talk about international in a little bit later. Um, I just want to point out that you and I wrote nearly identical stories, except yours is better and came out about this very topic and came out about 12 hours before mine. So that's a pretty good summary of where things stand right now. On the other hand, I got my own podcast, so it balances out. Let's talk about podcasting for a second. Um, we can call this podcasting's moment. Um, we could have called a few years ago podcasting's moment. I'm old, very old. So I remember uh, there was a MTV uh, VJ who created podcasting at one point. That's when podcasting was big in 2005. Um, as someone who consumes podcasting, as someone who writes about it, do you think that this, the 2019 year of the podcast, is more significant than previous years of the podcast we've had in the past? What were the previous years of the podcast? I would say serial. That was when the uh, podcasting broke big. Um, and then, yeah, there's the original 2005 when, when podcasting was related to an 
iPod, and I think people um, assumed it was going to be some sort of uh, mixtape thing. It made no sense. It, it had nothing to do with licensing, and of course it couldn't go anywhere. And most people couldn't connect their iPods to their computers, and it was never going to happen. So I think I'm kind of answering my own question here. But um, well, let's it feels yeah. different from Serial because what, what Serial demonstrated is that there was an appetite, right? And yep. so you had this show that came out, and millions of people listened to it, and all of a sudden relatives and friends who had no idea what podcasting were were suddenly aware because of Serial. So it, sort of, it, point, it kind of pointed this arrow at this opportunity. And in the years since then, you've seen various companies either tiptoe in or jump in. And what feels different now is not just that you now have you know, 700,000 podcasts, 800,000 podcasts, whatever it is, but you have very large companies positioning themselves to either be major producers or major distributors. So you have uh, or, or in some cases, both. You know, Spotify typifies that, where it both wants to supplant Apple as the dominant distributor of podcasts, but it has also spent tens of millions of dollars uh, to buy podcasting companies, including the Gimlet deal, which you broke, including a company called Parcast, and is now funding a large slate of original podcasts in a lot of different genres. That feels different to me, and Spotify making that investment means that all of a sudden... Apple has to reassess what it is going to do, and there's been a lot of kind of strategic moving around there over the past year. You have big Hollywood media companies like Comcast trying to set up their own studios, and you have a lot of young entrepreneurs who now see an opportunity. I think one thing you'll see a lot in the next year is, is podcasting companies that are kind of quote-unquote development companies where you come up with a podcast idea and the podcast is great, but your real goal is to then sell it to TV which is something that some companies have already had some success, but I think you're going to see startups where that's the whole business model. By the way, that seems like a not good business model at all, but um, we, can, we can get into that in a second. I, I share your concerns, yeah. I think you and I may have different perspectives on Apple, right? So Apple is the major distributor to date, has for a while had podcasting entirely to itself. Spotify has made a real concerted push. It's spent real money on it. Um, it's now starting to actually uh, push podcasts to its users, um, and it's sort of just getting started. Uh, there's iHeartRadio, which which ignored podcasting forever, and now I think says they're the biggest podcaster, but I'm not sure about that. Where do you think Apple goes from here? One, there's two versions that I'm aware of. One is they don't do anything for the most part um, because podcasting is a small business, and the other is they say they're not doing much, but they don't want to see a repeat of what happened with music where they sort of stuck with downloads for a very long time, let Spotify create a streaming music business sort of under their noses and came to it belatedly. And so we'll see the value in podcasting and we'll somehow create their own sort of stranglehold or at least significant business out of podcasting. Apple will take measured steps and experiments in podcasting to see what works. My sense of what's happened, they, they brought in some new leadership or executives for their podcasting business. I, I forget if it was late last year or early this year. Uh, but they will, at the very least, lend more marketing and promotional support to podcasts, develop commercial relationships with individual companies and shows and maybe even producers, which is something that they have hitherto not really done. Whether they will end up funding original podcasting, which is something they've talked about but not committed to, remains an open question. Whether they will better kind of unify the podcasting app 
with Apple Music, also an open question, because I think the podcasting app is kind of the, the dominant way people interact with, with podcasts right now. But I think they will, tr they will take some steps to ensure that they don't just lose a lot of listeners to Spotify. My sense of what's happened so far is Apple hasn't necessarily lost that much. Spotify sort of brought in new people or gained from all these smaller apps that people used to use that feel like they're going to kind of go the way of the dodo. And then you'll see, you'll have largely a competition between Apple, Spotify, and to your point in video too, Amazon, which I think is going to make a, pr a pretty big play in podcasting kind of through the Audible audiobook angle. Yeah, I've been waiting for Amazon to figure out how to turn Audible into a podcasting business. Um, we certainly consume a lot of it in the car, and you know, I got kids, and they don't really distinguish between a podcast and an audiobook. They're all just things they listen to on demand. I just made myself a nice, a nice segue. Speaking of on-demand audio, music, streaming, um, we no longer have to determine whether the future of music is streaming. You and I write stories multiple times a year pointing out uh, uh, the huge boom in streaming, both in consumption and revenue. So now that we can take that as a given, what does that mean for the, the kind of music we're going to listen to, either in this country or around the world? Does, does the delivery and um, sort of economics around streaming, does that change the actual music itself or does that sort of remain separate from the, the container? It's already started to change the music. The songs, especially pop songs, they're shorter because people tend to, to get, they're used to the radio, they get bored and they skip after two, two and a half minutes. Uh, you have to get to the hook a lot faster and just grab people in the first five, ten seconds. So this, again, the, this is the equivalent of a, a Facebook video a couple years ago. Yeah. Where it didn't have audio. So you um, can make something super compelling in the first couple seconds. I think you'll you see a lot of experimentation with the format of the album. There's a lot of people talking about how the album is dead and the playlist is the new thing. But people still, artists still release albums and they tour around them. And they'll you do see more kind of just releasing of a single here or a single there. But I, I think the result with the albums is sometimes you see really short albums because people will just have an idea. This is sort of what Kanye West has done, where he just he just has a, a few songs that he wants to get out. But you also see, I think, more bloated albums, kind of like in the, the heyday of the CD boom, because if you want to get, you know, rack up as much streaming time as possible, this is sort of what Drake does in some of the rappers, you'll just put like 20, 22 songs on there because people will just start and play all the way through. And then you see when a new Drake album comes out, like nine songs from Drake are in the top 20 on Apple or Spotify. And is the incentive there for Drake that that looks cool or he's getting paid per track streamed or he's somehow getting paid for total consumption? Is there is there a monetary reason for him to do it or is it just sort of a... I want a roadblock and I want to make sure everyone hears everything I make. It's both. I think there is a factor of just looking cool if you just monopolize the, the top 10. But I do believe, and I could be wrong on this, that um, because record companies tend to get, they tend to get their payments from Spotify, Apple, based on their share of listening. Yes. And then I do believe, again, that artists get royalties paid to them based on their share of that share. So if Drake can take up or Taylor Swift can take up 2-3% of all listening, they're just more likely to, to get paid. And Drake and uh, Taylor Swift are people who most likely would have been successful in other eras of music. Um, they're talented, they have commercially they're commercially motivated, and, you know, they're good-looking. That's sort of all the bars we've needed for the last several decades of, of music stardom. 
I think about Lil Nas X a lot. I don't know if I'm pronouncing the Lil correct. And the idea that he was literally a teenager in his, uh, I guess, his mom's uh, house who bought a, uh, a sample from a guy in the Netherlands. Turns out to be a Trent Reznor sample. Didn't realize that. Slapped together the song, becomes a huge hit song, and then sort of figures out how to market that really well. I know it's early because he's only, he's sort of one song out and, and it's been a year. But do you imagine we're going to see a lot more of those? Here, a couple different questions. One, will we see a lot more of those? Two, is there any reason to believe Lil Nas is someone who's going to have an extended career, or is this in the realm of any novelty song, or is he the, you know, the next Cisco thong song? I like to say thong a lot. You just wanted to get thong in the podcast, I get it. Yeah, I mean, basically, is there something about the moment we're in now and the way people consume music that makes it easier for the Lil Nas X's to, to become stars, at least temporarily, and is there a way for them to extend that? The barrier of entry for music is lower than it's ever been, I think, because not just of of Spotify and, and YouTube, but you know, Lil Nas X got a, a large following on TikTok. There's just so many ways for entertainers and musicians to get their work out there. And if they can do that and get it in front of people and then it develops an audience, that's a big way that that music companies are signing right now is they're just monitoring who's getting a, a spike in some place on Spotify. And they or what still video. are going, but there's still a label involved, right? He's attached to Universal, right? No, he's at Columbia, I believe. I'm sorry. He's, at, he's, at, he's in the, the Sony family. Okay. He's still with a big label. If you are Lil Nas X and you can blow up um, using TikTok and a sample you bought for eight bucks, et cetera, what is, besides the upfront check, which I, I get is a big deal, isn't there? I've been waiting for this for decades now. Isn't there a way to not work with the label and keep more of the money long term? It, it it's just saving yourself a, a lot of hassle. Mm-hmm. If you want to be, if you want to be a, a you know a, a you're a, an entrepreneur who just runs every part of your music business. Sort of the only real model of somebody who does that right now that is seems to be Chance the Rapper. Yep. You have to take care of marketing. You have to deal with royalty collections. There are all these other things that, you know, music rights and the collection of money from the people, the the services and all this and radio stations is really complicated and just a big headache that I, I don't think most artists want to deal with. Even artists with millions or tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars who do run their own companies, your Beyonce's, your Taylor Swift's, your, you know, they end up signing with music companies. Now they try to strike deals where they do now own their own music, yep. but they they benefit from having somebody else take care of the relationship with the playlisting person at Spotify or have to sit in the room with the people at, at iHeartMedia and make sure that they know that a new song is coming and how they want to market it or handle royalty collections from all over the world. I just don't think they want to deal with a lot of that. And so the label has uh, perhaps a slightly diminished role and maybe they're not getting quite as much of the, the revenue. But they still have a role. I mean, I, look, Taylor Swift, uh, not that not that all roads lead back to Taylor, but she had an opportunity within the last year or two to go it alone. And a lot of people thought maybe, you know, this is where Amazon will come in and sign an exclusive deal or Spotify. And she decided to to just go to Republic or Records. she could work with a platform or she could do a Twitter deal. Yeah, but she decided to sign with a, a record label anyways. Now, it would appear based on the copyright at the bottom of her page on Spotify that she now owns her own masters and owns her own publishing. 
but she still decided it was better to be in some way aligned with a big music company. Yeah, I, I thought that was reported and sort of documented as fact that she now owns her the new music yeah. she's creating for for them. One other thing, and I don't, I mean, because you were asking about the effect of streaming and kind of what what all that means for the record business and Lil Nas X. The other thing that I think we will see more and more of, or at least I hope we'll see more and more of, uh, is is artists from other parts of the world bubbling up and becoming global stars and not just stars in their own countries. You know, we've seen a huge surge thanks to YouTube and, and Spotify in music from Latin America in particular, from, from Mexico and from Colombia. India has emerged as a real battleground, battleground between different media companies um, and some of them, the, the, you know, the biggest channels or stars on YouTube and TikTok in particular are from India. And this applies not just uh, in, in music and in other places. And so I hope I'm not stepping on something you want to get to. Yeah, you've totally stepped on it, but we're going to revive it after, after the break. <laughs> so I do want to talk about international, other things I want to talk about. I think we need to have an ad here, right, Jelani? Mm-hmm. Yeah, an ad or, or someone who has some kind of message to deliver to you, the Recode Media listeners. We'll be back with Lucas Shaw in a few seconds. See you soon. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Back here with Lucas Shaw, the guy who will replace me any minute now, um, even before this podcast is over, from Bloomberg. Uh, we've talked about international a few times and, and sort of what that means. We've talked about Netflix uh, as a global media company, how they very much want to be that. They're explicit. that's sort of baked into their their business plan. Um, we were just talking about uh, international music moving around. To me, there's sort of different ideas, right? One is uh, a Mexican hip-hop star becoming popular in the U.S., or my kid having some understanding that PewDiePie is fighting an Indian. He probably doesn't even realize that T-Series is, is Indian. Uh, and the other is Netflix saying we are going to be a dominant brand that delivers entertainment all around the world. Um, I'm just trying to – I was racking my brain before we started talking about this. We, there is no parallel for this, for at least what Netflix's ambition is, right? We have global internet platforms. I don't need to list them, but they're – Google, et cetera. Um, but they explicitly are not sort of media companies, or they say they're not media companies, whereas Netflix wants to be an entertainment brand that reaches everyone in the world short of China. Do we think that's a good idea? Is that Does that make you uncomfortable at all? I'm wondering if I should be uncomfortable with the idea. If, if Netflix wins and is a global dominant brand, is that a good thing? The pro is that you get to hear stories from everywhere else. I think I, I do credit Netflix with ensuring that, you know, friends of mine are watching reality shows from Japan and drama series from Europe uh, and, you know, reality shows from Israel, on and on and on. The, the danger is that as it gets more established in all these countries, having to navigate the local regulations and tastes and making sure that it then doesn't water down the values or have to sacrifice, I guess, what we would see as the the kind of 
Western values of most media companies to satisfy governments in other countries. We got a little taste of this this year with a fight that, or it didn't end up being a fight because Netflix just lay down, but it, uh, a dispute regarding a Hassan Minhaj's show in Saudi Arabia, where he had been critical of the government there, and the government asked Netflix to take that episode of the show down. They did, though only in that country. And I would imagine that things like that will play out more and more, and that will be a concern. Yeah, I mean, it seems like that's just built in, right? Um, I mean, every time we've had some sort of internet company in a dispute with another country story flares up. The biggest one was obviously China a, a few months ago, although we pretended to ignore it. We are, I guess, ignoring it now. But if you're distributing internationally, um, you're going to end up in conflict with various regimes, even democratically elected ones. Seems to me that net, that's Netflix. What Netflix ought to say, and there's, uh, Reed Hastings had this sort of tortured explanation of how they're not journalists; they're entertainers, and that's why it's okay to bring down entertainment. But they also wouldn't bring down other content. That the more practical answer is, yeah, we're going to take down stuff in different countries, and that's how we're going to do business. And we'd rather we'd rather distribute that stuff in that some stuff in that country than not at all. Um, and that's the we've made peace with that. Right. Much like movie studios have made peace with the fact that they have to censor their movies to get into China. Mm-hmm. And Netflix can't get into China at all. Which is a stance that Netflix has thus far not taken with, in its effort to, to get into the country. By the way, enterprising reporters out there, I would like someone to tell me the real history of Netflix's attempt to get into China and when and when it went bad. I've, I've tried poking at it myself and haven't gotten it yet. Um, but there's no... There's no, there may be just the very simple answer, which is China made them some, either told them they wanted them, didn't want them there under any circumstance or made them an offer they wanted no part of. Maybe you have some ideas. Um, and then, I mean, YouTube sort of is a global entertainment brand, right? Absolutely. It's the model for Netflix in that regard. I mean, that Reed Hastings, the CEO of Netflix, makes that pretty clear. YouTube gets, I don't know what the latest numbers are, but 80% of its audience from outside the U.S., and that's where Netflix would like to be. And the difference being that Netflix will control what comes in and then what it, it distributes out to everybody else, whereas YouTube sort of throws up its hands and says, we've got no idea, and isn't that great? Just curious, I, I talked to Susan Wojcicki at length uh, at Code Conference in the spring about this idea that it's just not tenable, I, th- I don't think, to run a sort of open platform at the scale these companies are, are working at. And she kind of looked at me like I had multiple heads um, on stage <laughs> and even off stage. She's like, you don't really believe that, right? And I do. I just think it's not tenable, I think, for business reasons, for moral reasons, for uh, legal reasons. Um, these companies are going to have to make some significant changes to the way they operate. Obviously, there's a real downside to that, too. Do you think that the, the era of YouTube and Facebook and just uh, Google as being sort of mostly unfiltered distribution platforms is sustainable? No, I, I I agree with you in that it's it uh, these companies have to take some responsibility for what appears on the site. So I, the the initial kind of laws and the framework that gave them uh, that or uh, limited their liability, the DMCA yep. and other acts were forged when these companies were either tiny or did not exist at all. And so, right, these are the, these are the, the, the 1996 telco uh, yeah. legislation um, is where the there DMCA was a vested comes in. interest. Yeah, there was a vested interest in fostering the internet and companies built on the internet, and that was a, a, a valuable 
uh, kind of goal then. But now these internet companies are the biggest companies in the world, and it seems crazy to me that they can stand there and say the whole time that they should not be responsible for what all these other people host on them or host on their sites, and yet they make all sorts of rules about what the people who do upload videos can and can't do. There are lots of rules about what advertisers can and can't do and how you buy ads and who you buy them from that tend to favor their technologies. And I just have to believe that there will be some kind of filter for what people yeah. can and can't say, because otherwise YouTube and Facebook and, and some of these other sites are going to just have scandals all the time. And yes, the business keeps growing and advertisers don't really care. But at some point, the government or somebody is going to step in and say there's some changes that have to be made. Yeah, by the way, even even when they have the changes, um, they're just permanently going to be mired in scandal. It's just the nature of what they're doing. It's at scale, right? If you cover that many people, you're going to have all kinds of problems. And and in their defense, it's a naughty problem. My colleague Casey Newton's been doing great reporting on, on the human beings uh, that companies, including Facebook and, and uh, YouTube, pay very little money to look at the worst things in the world. Those companies, by the way, all think that eventually those people will be replaced by software, whether that's good or bad is, is something else. But, you know, there are human beings looking at the worst things in the world and trying to take them off Facebook and YouTube with varying degrees of success. That doesn't seem sustainable either. That's not very perky. Let's let's talk about the, the decade. This is the legally required decade in review section of the podcast. I wish we had like a gong or something we could play. We don't have that kind of uh, tech. Um is there a single piece of news? Is there a single development in the last 10 years, 2010 to 2020, that you think is the most significant thing when you think about sort of the companies you've been covering since you were in college? Um, the the cop-out answer, but it's true, is is just, I guess, would be like streaming, like a video, yeah. video and audio compression technology. <laughs> Uh, I go with iPhone, even though it's 2007. Was the it was the iPhone? Yeah, it wasn't I mainstream mean, I guess, until yeah. then. Mobile technology, without question, we now all live with our phones as a as a permanent appendage, appendage, probably replacing our hand on some days. And then the ability to consume media on those phones has has changed the world. Or, I mean, I was just I'm actually listening to your old colleague Mike Isaac's book. And I sort of lost track of the fact that, or didn't even, I hadn't even thought about with something like Uber, that that was only made possible by the iPhone. I remember um, a VC explaining to me that, that, that this is around 2010, that he wanted to invest exclusively in things that the iPhone enabled. And that it was yeah. theoretically possible to order an Uber from a laptop, but there was no point to it. That the whole premise of it was being sitting on a street, hitting a button, and a car comes up. And he wanted to find other versions of that. Yeah, pretty much every, you know, most of the things that we do are driven by that that phone, whether it's the, you know, I listen to music using my phone. I, I watch video mostly on a television, but I could do it on my phone, and a lot of people do do it on a phone. I figure out probably what restaurants I'm going to go to or research things on my, on my phone, oftentimes even if I'm sitting at my desk at a computer. So it seems like no question that that is the defining technology of the decade and every and then within our little corner of the media or at least my little corner of the media and entertainment world most of the ways people use that phone are to stream video and and music which has so thoroughly disrupted the the TV business 
the music business and, and soon enough, the movie business. So around 2010, the iPhone was a big deal. We all knew it. And I think there was this assumption that Apple or someone, but probably Apple, would come up with the next iPhone and the next thing after that and the next thing after that. And our world would be sort of reshaped every three or four years. And I think that was the initial promise of the, the iPad. That didn't really pan out. It's still a successful device, but it certainly didn't shape our world. The, the iPhone did. And nothing really has, has had that significance. Similarly, 2010... Google was a very big deal, but now Facebook was becoming more important. Facebook had replaced MySpace. Twitter was becoming a thing. And and I think and if you were old, you could remember when AOL and Yahoo were a big deal. And we sort of as- I sort of assumed you would continue to see sort of the next Facebook rise, the next Twitter rise, the next and that never happened. Um, Snapchat slash Snap came up, seems thoroughly sort of a, a niche product. Um, you could argue that's what Instagram became, but Facebook snapped that up. Um, and now we're in a TikTok era, but that also seems like it's a quite narrow band. Um, if you're very young, you're interested in it. Um, do you think there's a reason that we haven't seen sort of giant new media slash internet distribution platforms come up over the last decade? Because the real transformation was the shift from analog to digital, I guess, and that has happened. And so now it's sort of a land grab within the internet space. Mm-hmm. Like this is a, a little bit of a tangent, but I remember, you know, there were all, all these companies over the past few years that were kind of quote unquote unicorns, big deals, ones that we've basically seen flame out the, yeah. the WeWorks and the Ubers. And I never got why they were described as tech companies because they weren't tech companies. They were just companies that took something that we had in the real world and brought it onto the internet, but their underlying technology was not game-changing. They had stories, they had stories, by the way, that said, we have amazing technology right. that allows us to do something, something. The WeWork one was total bullshit. Uber did have a lot of engineers, but they're using Steve Jobs' iPhone and someone else who's driving a car, and they would tell you that they had really sophisticated software that matched you, but if you've been to lots of places that have Uber clones, you realize it's not that difficult. Yeah. The, the base technology, a lot of the base technologies have now been commoditized. It's, it's also what, again, we've seen in, in video or music where Netflix's technological lead on its competitors or Spotify's technological lead on its competitors is not that great. It just has a map. It, it saw the opportunity on the Internet early, built a really large audience and has tried to remain ahead with its execution and other things that now people think they're going to want. But I don't know that they're you know, the next great, we won't see maybe that next massive company develop until there is a technological wave similar in, in scale to the movement of so much media and attention online. And if, if I knew what that was, I probably wouldn't be reporting anymore. That's my stock answer when someone asks me, by the way, about other cool startups or good stocks they should be investing in. No one likes that answer, by the way. Yeah, I'm, well, I like it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like it as well. Um, Let's have fun. It's, if, I, if, you, if you say let's have fun, it's not going to be very fun. But most counterintuitive prediction you've got for 2020? First thought, best thought. I'm terrible at these, but okay. like your question about the, uh, like the startups. I mean, I would say that mine, mine would be really simple. Uh, it's going to be a really bad year for the movie business just because the box office is going to be way down. And I think that that could result in some transactions regarding either a theater chain uh, or maybe even a studio. Meaning they would go under or they would sell to someone else? That they would sell. Like I was, I was talking with somebody recently who pointed out that 
that AMC Theaters, which is uh, by most measures one of the two or three largest theater chains in the world, I think is is its market value is less than a billion dollars right now. So if there were an enterprising company that really wanted to figure out the movie business, that would be one opportunity. You and I were having some fun at someone else's expense on Twitter, which is the good summary of Twitter, um, where they were predicting that Netflix would uh, um, get into sports. Um, this is one of the many things people talk about Netflix doing. Netflix doesn't do it for a good reason. One of the things they mention is the idea of Netflix buying a theater chain. And this somehow this solves their, their the, the Martin Scorsese problem, right? They can get the movie into theaters and then also stream it to you and me. Without saying anything else, Lucas Shaw, do you think that's a good idea? I don't think it'll happen. If there are three, three ideas that I have to push back on most in covering Netflix, it's why they're not that interested in live sports, why they're not interested in advertising, and why they're not interested in large-scale acquisitions. And to your point on this one, they don't like buying companies that require them to buy lots of people. Because either that means that they have to lay off hundreds, if not thousands of people, or they have to find a way to take their culture, which they're very protective of and is very weird, and few, and kind of train all of these people to accept that culture at the same time, which is not something that they want to do. So, yeah, my answer is no. Yeah, I agree. I also just think it doesn't actually solve any problem for them. I don't think the, I don't think the Martin Scorsese problem is a real problem for them. Do you think that now that we've seen... The other, the other one that people have loved to talk about over the past many, many years is Apple and Hollywood. And they're finally making shows, which is a, is a big step for them. But there are two schools of thought on the future of Apple and Hollywood. One is they're going to experiment for a few years and then decide that this is a headache and a waste of time and leave. And the other is that they're going to ultimately decide that this is so important that they will either really increase their investment or maybe kind of buy a studio in two or three years. Do you subscribe to one of those two theories or are you somewhere in between? I can see all of those scenarios. How about that for a hedge bet? Um, there's definitely a version <laughs> where they get out, but I think it is too big for them to get out and they have now sold this services narrative to Wall Street and have to actually generate service revenue. I don't know, but it sure seems like what they're doing at, at, at first blush here is not working. They've, you know, you can more fairly assess their output in a year. I, that said, I was watching live TV the other day. It was sports, obviously. And an ad for something came on, and I knew that it was not a movie movie, and I knew that it wasn't an HBO thing, and then I couldn't tell what it was. And it had a bunch of stars, and it seemed to be important, but it also didn't look good, and then it was an Apple TV show. And I thought, that's not a good place for them to be. I shouldn't be looking—I should be—I should know what it is, and I should think it's great. I do think the fact that they have looked at HBO and Time Warner before means that they might certainly come back to it at some point. And frankly, I think them going – I do like a scenario that I'm creating in my head right now where they eventually go to AT&T and say, look, you, you tried melding an entertainment company onto a wireless company. It really doesn't make any sense. Wall Street doesn't like it. Um, this will be embarrassing for you, but why don't you sell it to us? We can do something with this. And or – by the way, since the CEO of AT&T is no longer Randall Stevenson, it's somebody else, you don't even have to own this mistake. Um, we'll take it off your hands. So that's my, that's my ridiculous prediction for some time in the future. Speaking of ridiculous predictions, my, my wish fulfillment prediction is I would like Quibi to succeed, if only because 
everyone is convinced that it won't, with good reason. Um, it's just a much better story if it turns out that Jeff, Jeffrey Katzenberg was right and people do want to pay a premium for short-form content on their phone. Been, and then a, uh, a very kind of proud, vindictive Jeffrey Katzenberg gets to tell everybody why they were wrong. He can do it right now. But yeah, no, it'd be great if it'd be great if he wins because it, it makes no sense. There's no demand for it, and I love the idea of someone saying everyone is wrong. I was right. I figured out that that, that the market was completely uh, inefficient and figured out how to exploit it. Don't think it'll happen. Would love it if it did. Lucas, I, I have kids, so I pretty much only see kids stuff. I listen to music my kids like, which is usually music from those movies that I see with them. Um, so I need you to help me. Uh, what's your favorite album of the last year? Uh, Michael Kiwanuka's Kiwanuka, I think, is my favorite album of the past. Okay. I had a lot. I thought this was a pretty good year for new music. Jelani, you're a young person. Have you heard of Michael Kiwanuka? Oh, Jelani's shaking his head. He's like half my age. Can you explain who Michael Kiwanuka is? He is a British uh, neo-soul singer. He is probably best known to listeners of this podcast as the singer of the title track for Big Little Lies. Okay, down to like the now. song that plays in the credit sequence. His first album was very like cookie cutter, but good neo soul. His second album, which is where the Big Little Lies track comes from, is a step forward. Uh, I have tried to see him twice. Both times he has canceled due to vocal problems. And his third album, which came out recently, is uh, it's not going to get not probably not going to be put on anybody's album of the year list. But I have a very soft spot uh, in my heart for uh, kind of soul and R and B and that type of music, and it's it's just a joy to listen to. We're going to look up how to spell it. We'll plug that into the show notes, right, Jelani? Good. I'm not going to ask you about the best TV show of the year because the answer to that is Watchmen. It's the best TV show of forever. Yeah, I, I would love say, it. I would say it's Fleabag. But. Uh, Fleabag's also great, um, but I did not shout every time I watched it like I did with uh, uh, Watchmen. It's so great. Um, but yes, Fleabag's great. It, TV's great. Um, favorite movie of the year? Oh, so I, the, the lamest answer of it is I'm not sure yet. I have seen all of the really big movies that are expected to be awards contenders. I really liked a lot of them. There was not a single one that truly blew me away. Um, and I tried to then think back what was the movie where when I walked out of the theater, I was in the best mood. And that movie was probably Booksmart. Haven't seen it. I know what it is. Will I enjoy it as much when I watch it at home? Yes. It's a movie that did not need to be released wide in theaters. It has a great soundtrack. Um, and it is one of those movies that will suffer from the idea that comedies can't be taken seriously. Because, like, my response is, I love that movie, but then I put on the whole the Oscar point of view yeah. where it has to be an important movie. And so, yes, The Irishman is really good, and Marriage Story is really good, and Parasite uh, is really good, um, and, and on down the line. But I, don't, I didn't walk out of any of those movies in the same mood as I was when I walked out of Booksmart. Okay, that is how we're either ending the year or beginning the year, depending on when you're listening to this. Go rent or buy Booksmart, says Lucas Shaw. I say, Lucas Shaw, thank you for coming on. It's great. I don't know why we haven't done this before, but probably because we're not in the same room usually. So we'll figure out how to do that at some point in real life. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. Be well.
more to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.